The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them to the book of Revelation chapter 2. If you're newer to church, Revelation is the very last book of the New Testament. So if you get to the very back, you'll find Revelation chapter 2. I, um, after I heard the news about Randy, I started praying and and I wasn't sure what what to preach on or what to say today, but all I knew is that Randy would want to make sure we talked a lot about Jesus this morning. Um, so that's what I'm just going to try and do in our remaining time together as we as we continue in our series, um, looking at these seven churches that were all existed in the area of what is now modern day Turkey and the message that Jesus has towards each of them. Uh, many, many years ago, uh, I believe it was a business or leadership book um, that, that coined the phrase that a lot of you will know. And the phrase is this, the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. All right, good. I'm not the only one who knows the phrase, right? Like that is, that is the main thing. And in the church, the main thing is the worship of Jesus. That is the main thing. And our main goal is to make sure that everything we do revolves, centers, and focuses around the worship of Jesus. And what that means as a church and then as Christians for our lives, that's also to be the goal. That our lives would be centered and shaped that Jesus and the worship of Jesus would be the core, the center, the main thing that our lives are built around. It's true in business. This is good advice in life, but it's certainly true in following after Jesus. And this morning, we're going to look at a church where for many of them, they had lost the main thing. They replaced Jesus with other things as the main thing in their life. This morning's letter is to the church in Thyatira, actually a, a smaller town um, in there, not, not a capital city like Pergamum was, not a center of trade like Ephesus would have been, but, but still a place that Jesus sends a message to that we have, that we can learn from today. So Revelation, I'll read the passage for us, chapter two, starting at verse 18. And to the angel in the church of Thyatira write, the words of the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and your faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and hearts and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from the Father." And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Well, if you've been a part of this series at all the last month, you know, each, each week we walk through, because each of these mini sermons is structured in a very similar way. And so we'll start again this morning where we've started for the last several weeks with the title, the, the Christ title that Jesus gives himself here in verse 18. The words of the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He first calls himself the son of God. By the way, you may hear this around that some people will say, well, Jesus never calls himself the son of God in the Bible. May I present to you Revelation chapter two, verse 18. I am the son of God. And like many of these references, as we walk through, we see there's specific reasons why Jesus refers to himself with certain things and certain names and certain images based on the locations. And that's true again here. There were two local deities that were worshipped in Thyatira. One was the, the ancient god Teramnos, which became part of the Greek god Apollo later in life. And he was largely known not just as Apollo, but he was known as the son of Zeus. That was kind of his tagline. He was the son of Zeus. The other deity that was worshipped in this area was the emperor, who was often also called a son of God, sometimes even a son of Zeus. And so you have a city where there were two main things being worshipped the son of Zeus and this other guy who claimed to be the son of Zeus. And Jesus shows up and says, I'm the son of God. Not these other pagan deities, which claim sonship from God. I am divine. I am the son of God. This idea of sonship. And we see here this idea, which flows throughout of the son coming to judge his people is also a reference here back to Psalm chapter two, verse seven. And this is specifically, you know, because we'll read verses eight and nine later, which are clearly alluded to later in this, in this vision of the son coming to judge the nations, looking forward to the time of Messiah. The son then refers to himself with eyes like a flame of fire, and feet like burnished bronze. In Daniel chapter 10, this vision that Daniel had of a man from heaven was very similar. Two of the characteristics of this man from heaven, the Messiah to come, would be that his eyes would be like this and that his legs actually here were burnished with bronze. But a similar, very similar idea. This eyes like a flame of fire, this is an easy one for us to understand. This idea of penetrating sight that Jesus can see everything. Right, so like anything that we would try and put up, his eyes penetrate and they burn aside and he sees to the very core of who we are and who this church is, that nothing is hidden from him. And this idea of burnished bronze means that he can stamp out any opposition that would come in his way. It's a sign of strength, that Jesus sees all and nothing can stop his judgments, which are coming. So that's the title that he gives himself. Secondly, the commendation. What is this church doing well? Verse, verse 19, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance. This was a church that was known for some good things. They, they kept faith in Jesus. They were active in serving one another. They had endured through trouble and hardship. In the very first sermon that we looked at in the city of Ephesus, this is the only other time that this word love, this word love appears in this book of Revelation. They had lost their love for Jesus. This church hadn't. They, they still were holding on, they were loving Jesus. Not only that, but their latter works exceeded the first, meaning this wasn't a church that like got excited about Jesus and was kind of like coasting, but they were growing. They were growing in love, in faith, in endurance in their time. And so Jesus commends them for this. But thirdly, he has a complaint. Verse 20, but I have this against you. And the complaint is very similar to the complaint that we looked at last week to the church in Pergamum. 
ultimately one that they eat food sacrificed to idols, meaning they're participating in pagan rituals, which revolved around this meal, and with that, practicing sexual immorality. Last week, that the, he used the idea from the Old Testament of Balaam. This week, it's a character named Jezebel. Jezebel, who is a very real person in Old Testament history. The story of Jezebel, if, if you've not read it before, it starts in the book of 1 Kings, I believe about chapter 18. Jezebel is a pagan queen who marries the king of Israel, King Ahab, and along with brings all this pagan worship into the northern kingdom of Israel. She introduced all of hundreds and hundreds of false prophets She tries to kill all the prophets of Yahweh and later on in her life tries to specifically get hunted out and kill Elijah himself. She is known as the archetype of one who seduces God's people away from God and towards idolatry. And he references here this woman Jezebel, a prophetess among you. Now, most likely... This name, this person in Thyatira, her name probably was not Jezebel, right? Because it was seen and associated with this wicked person. I, I hope there's no one here this morning, but there's a reason this doesn't make your top 10 baby list of names for girls, right? Like the association with Jezebel is a very negative connotation. Um, and so it probably wasn't a woman actually named Jezebel, but was attaching her to a character that was someone, most likely a woman in this church, who was leading the church astray and introducing false teaching, ultimately having them commit idolatry and sexual immorality. The emphasis here is on the idolatry that Jezebel leads them to. And we see that because in verse 22, it talks about those who commit adultery. That's not physical adultery, that's spiritual adultery. They turned away from God and towards idols. And then later on, we see those who have learned these deep things of Satan. So she says she has something to give them, but is leading God's people astray. That's their God's complaint against this church. The correction then, and this is where the church in Thyatira is, is a little bit different than some of the others because here the correction and then the fifth, the consequence are divided into two. And first we see the correction for those who hold to this teaching with Jezebel. So there were some in the church who would say they were Christians, but were also practicing this same thing. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses. Verse 22 at the end, unless they repent of her works. And so, and so what is the correction for those who are following in idolatry after Jezebel? Well, it's, it's to repent. It's to stop. It's to root this idolatry out of their lives and to turn towards Jesus and forsake this false teaching that they have fallen to. What is the consequence though for those who have followed this? What is the consequence, the negative consequence if they don't? Verse 22 I will throw her onto a sickbed. That same word for sickbed there would have been the same word for the bed or the couch in which these pagan festivals would have been that they would have celebrated on. That the sexual immorality that was known amongst these festivals would have happened on. And Jesus is saying the same place of your sin and immorality is now the same place you will find the punishment. And instead of being a bed of pleasure, I will make it a sickbed for you. It says that that they've committed adultery and will throw them into great tribulation, great distress. And then in 23, I will strike her children dead. Now, this is not like God going around and killing toddlers, right? What this is referring to is the children of Jezebel would mean her spiritual children, those who also follow after her. And so those who have fallen pray to this teaching of Jezebel, this false teaching would walk after He's saying, listen, this is a path that unless you repent, this leads to death. This is not the way of Jesus. This is not the way of God. And if you are her children and continue in this idolatry, you are walking away from Jesus and it is leading you towards death. 
And then it's unique there, verse 23. Because notice most of these messages are very localized, right? On this church, this church. Look at verse 23, halfway through, and all the churches. Saying, I will do this so that every church around you, all of these six other ones as well, will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. The literal, the literal translation here is, I will search your kidneys and your heart. Because in ancient thought, that was the, where the inmost desires and longings were of a person. Jesus is saying, I see the very deepest core of every single person and of who they are. That's where this eyes of fire comes right in. I see to the very depths of your soul and everyone will know it. Well, then the second group, those who haven't held to this teaching, they get their own correction, their own encouragement later on. Verse 24, to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching. So there were some who didn't follow this teaching, but they were still tolerating it in their midst, right? And so they're still called out amongst that. It's like, hey, it's not good to tolerate it. You're not holding to it though. If you're not holding to it, what are they called to? Verse 25, hold fast until I come. Stay true to Jesus. Continue to reject this false teaching. Walk away from it. Hold fast to Jesus. And if they do, verse 26, the one who conquers, the one who has victory, the one who overcomes, if you do, you will get granted authority over the nations. The positive consequence, if we, if we follow Jesus, if we withstand this false teaching, is that we will share in Jesus's authority and kingly rule in his messianic kingdom. And this was a well-known thing and thought throughout the New Testament, that as followers of Jesus, we get to participate in the messianic rule of God over the world. And these images are sharp images of this rule and reign of God over all things on which we, should we be faithful and conquer, like this passage says, will be a participant. In verse 27, it references a rod and earthen pots broken into pieces. This is the reference to to Psalm chapter two. Psalm two, verses eight and nine say this, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. I will give you authority over the nations. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This rod could either be representative of a kingly scepter or of a club that shepherds would use to defend their flock. We don't know exactly, but it's the sign of authority and of protection. And then, and then you have this idea of pots being broken into pieces. And it's a, this idea that, that God can do whatever he wants, including the breaking and reshaping of anything. And this is the same idea that the prophet Jeremiah picks up in Jeremiah 18, 19, the well-known passage that I am the potter, you are the clay. And Jesus shows his authority and sovereignty and rule over all things by saying, hey, listen, whatever you thought I could crush and I can remake any pot however I want. And he's taking that same imagery here into Revelation, showing his authority over the nations in which we get to participate in. At the end of verse 27, he says, as I myself have received authority from my father. That's a reference back to a well-known passage of the Great Commission, Jesus's last words to his disciples in Matthew 28. Before he says, go into all the world and make disciples, he says in Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is saying, because I have died, because I rose from the dead, because I defeated death, I have authority over all things. That Jesus has received that authority and he shares it with those who would overcome, who would conquer until the end with him. 
the second positive consequence for those who endure is in verse 28. And I will give him the morning star, the morning star. Numbers chapter 24 looks to forward to a star that would come from Jacob. And this was seen as a messianic prophecy that a star would come one day looking at the Messiah. And we know this is talking of Jesus specifically because in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, it says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So if this church and if we are faithful, we are rewarded by being with Jesus himself. The presence of God forever with us. Jesus is the reward if we remain faithful to the end. What are three lessons from this church in Thyatira? This church was real. It existed 2,000 years ago. But, but what, what can we learn from this passage that, that relates, that helps us think about what it looks like to follow God in our world today? The first lesson is this. You cannot hide your sin from God. You cannot hide your sin from God. The, 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 the image, not only of Jesus being like that one of with these eyes like flames of fire. But then that, that verse in 23 is so, is so strong. I am he who searches mind and heart, that nothing in our lives is hidden from God. But see, hiding from God because of sin is the normal, natural response to sin. Even if we like were to stop and think about it, we all know like that doesn't make sense, but we still do it anyways. Right, like Genesis chapter three, if you don't know the Bible, the very first sin, Adam and Eve have sinned. They've had perfect relationship with God. God comes down into garden, into the paradise where he is. And what do Adam and Eve do? They're like, let's play hide and seek from God. Like if they actually would have stopped, they would have been like, that makes no sense. Like, of course, God knows where we are. But that is the natural response from our sin is we want to hide it from him and think that he doesn't see it. Now, God sees our sin. And sometimes when we find ourselves in sin, the natural response is to try and hide it, to close it. That God, I don't want God to see that part, but God sees all of us. This reality is at the same time terrifying, but also comforting. It's terrifying, but comforting. It's terrifying because of this. As you start, as, as, as you're a follower of Jesus or exploring Christianity, if you start to understand who God is, and who Jesus is, and how perfect and righteous and holy and pure he is, you'll start to see in your life, there's a lot of sin. There's a lot of sin. And here's the reality. As bad as you think you are, you're worse. It's the truth. As bad as you think you are, you are actually worse. There is sin in your life that you've become so numb, so blind to that you don't even see it. Because we are fallen, we can't accurately, we don't have this picture of ourselves. We are worse than we actually think we are. Why do you think when the prophet says that our righteousness is as filthy rags? Because even the good that we do is often tainted and marred with sin in our lives. Anyone ever been nice to their spouse just so they could go and then try and spend more money later and ask for forgiveness from it? Oh, I'm the only one. Yeah, right. You all have done that. <laughs> Right? Even the good things that we could do in life are marred by sinful desires, sinful habits, sinful motivations, that we are more sinful than we even realize. And Jesus sees that. 
He sees the more sin in our lives than we see. He, he, it can't be hidden from him. He sees it to the very core. So it's terrifying. But why is it comforting? Because God sees you for who you really are. He sees you to the very core and he loves you anyways. He sees the depths of the depravity and sin that are worse than you ever imagined, but he loves you anyways. See, so often in our world, we, we talk about potential. It's like a buzzword, right? Oh, this person has potential. You'll, you'll hire someone to your company because, hey, they have potential to develop into a great employee someday, meaning they're kind of garbage now or they're not great, but like maybe they'll get better one day. I hope so. And so that's why I want them. They have great potential. Jesus doesn't save you. Jesus doesn't love you because you have great potential. He loves you for who you are right now. He doesn't love you for who you could maybe one, be, one day be in 20, 30, 40 years down the road. He loves you right now in your sin, in the messed up state that you find yourself in. And so it's comforting because God loves you and he knows you better than you even know yourself. And when we rightfully see that we cannot hide our sin from God, the only response is to run to him for forgiveness and grace. The only response that we can have when we understand our sin, understand that we can't hide it, but understand that God still loves us and offers us grace anyways, the only proper response is to run to him for forgiveness, not to try and hide our sin. The second lesson from this church is Jesus demands your exclusive worship. Jesus demands your exclusive worship. This church and those who had been pulled with Jezebel into this teaching of, of looking at idolatry, they would not have denied Jesus. They would have been like, oh no, I, I still love Jesus, but I also have this thing going on. But for Jesus, it's not enough that, that you still love him, but you're also putting other things before him. Jesus demands our exclusive worship. When, when historians look back, at this early church period in early in Roman history, there, there's a lot of things that stand out. But what, what was most shocking about this, these Christians is not that they worship Jesus. There was all sorts of worship. There was worship everywhere in Roman culture. Gods were everywhere. What was crazy is that they only worshiped Jesus. See, a lot of people had all these other gods and they say, yep, that's Lord. I'll worship Caesar as Lord. I'll have this God. And then Christians come along and be like, Jesus is God. And they're like, we'll say Caesar is Lord. And they'll say, no. And some were willing to die for it because they realized that Jesus alone is worthy of our worship. It's this idea that, that is portrayed in the beginning of the Old Testament. Six times, the phrase comes that God is a jealous God. A jealous God. And we often misunderstand that. Like, what did like God look down on us and be like, oh, I wish I was that good looking? Like, what, what does that mean that God is like jealous of us? Well, Deuteronomy chapter four says this Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. You made a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When God says he is a jealous God, what it means is he rightfully yearns for what is rightfully his. 
And when we place our faith in him, he rightfully demands that we worship him alone. And anything in our lives that would get in the way of that exclusive worship, God jealously desires after us to turn aside, to remove those things from our hearts and worship him and him alone. This is why so often throughout scripture, when idolatry, when things that push Jesus to the side are talked about, it's in terms of adultery, right? We saw there in verse 22, those who commit adultery with her. It's this spiritual adultery. There's a book that I read many years ago that traces this theme throughout the whole, the whole Bible. And it focuses on the prophets where this comes up over and over again. And he titled the book because it was so relevant to it. He titles the book, God's Unfaithful Wife. That's the picture of God's people in the Old Testament, that we are an unfaithful wife to God. And so God is jealous. Why? Because the commitment has been made. He's jealous for what is rightfully his. In fact, to illustrate this so powerfully, he actually calls one of his prophets to literally live this out in his life, right? Hosea was called by God. And God said, Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute. Hosea probably was like, say what? Like, it's like, nope, you heard me. So he goes, he marries a prostitute. What does the prostitute do? She leaves Hosea, goes find other ones. What does God call Hosea to do? You need to go buy her back and bring her back to you. Why? God says, because that's what I do to you over and over again. You walk away, you abandon me, and I am jealous for this love, which is rightfully mine. Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus demands your exclusive worship. He will not have other things put before him because you have made that commitment and it is rightfully his. To be a Christian means to worship God exclusively. The third lesson from this church is that we must root idolatry from our lives. We must root idolatry from our lives. This sin of idolatry came in and it pushed Jesus to the side for many in their church. We talked about this a few, about a month or so ago. Idolatry is not just the literal bowing down of of idols or going to pagan festivals, but idolatry is anything that replaces Jesus at the center of our lives. And our hearts are so prone to wander that we do this without intentionally doing it or thinking about it, that we push Jesus to the side and center our lives on other things. See, every single one of us, whether you're here this morning, you've been a Christian for a long, long time, or whether you're here, you're an agnostic, you're an atheist, every single one of us worships something. We were designed, every human worships. The question is, what do you worship? And as Christians, we're called to put Jesus at the center of our lives, the object of our worship. Our lives all revolve around something. What is that thing? See, sometimes I I think of life, it's kind of like a solar system. That you have all of these things spinning and going around, right? You have family, you have work, you have kids, you have jobs, you have hobbies, you have career, you have all of these different things spinning at the same time. But there's always something at the center around everything else which else spins, Right? There's a core on which everything else will be sacrificed, set aside so that that center thing is fulfilled. As Christians, we must make sure that center commitment that which everything else revolves in our life is Jesus. That nothing else pushes it aside. See, there's so many things that could be pushed into that center of our lives that could become idols in the place that Jesus rightfully belongs. 
I've been reading a little bit. I haven't finished the book, but I've read quite a bit of it and listened to, to a few different interviews and articles um, by a woman named Carolyn Chen. She's a UC Berkeley professor, and she wrote a book that just came out this year. And the title of the book is this, Work, Pray, Code. And the subtitle is, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. I don't believe that she's a Christian. The book is not necessarily written from a Christian perspective. I don't know her faith background. But she, she's noticed this. She said that the Bay Area, Silicon Valley is, and we've talked about this before, is the most non-churched, non-Christian area in the United States. So she said, but you would be wrong to think that it's not religious. It is one of the most religious places in the world, but the religion is work. She writes this in her book. Work has become sacred to tech workers. Their companies and startups are the faith communities that spiritually form and direct their devotion, giving them meaning, purpose, and belonging in life. She argues that it's unique here and now because this has always been an option, right? It's always been an option that we could put work as an idol in our life. What she says is unique in, in this area in Silicon Valley, that's what's expected, like if you don't do that, it's seen as the abnormal, that your work is expected to be the focus around which everything revolves. She writes this, we make something sacred when we sacrifice, submit, and surrender to it. I love that because I think what she argues, and I think she argues it pretty well, is for so many people specifically here in the Bay Area, what we will sacrifice our lives, submit everything to, and surrender our time, everything to is our careers. Our work, it's the most attractive idol that sucks us in. Now, maybe for you, it's not work. Maybe it's, maybe it's something else. But if you're a follower of Jesus, we must ensure that Jesus is at the center of our lives, that everything else revolves around him, that we push idols, they creep in, that we push these idols out and focus our lives on Jesus. On, uh, on Wednesday, this past week, it was Wednesday morning when, when Randy's son called and told me the, the news of his passing. We actually had, we had an elders meeting scheduled for Wednesday night. And so I called and I, I talked to elders and I knew right away we're, there's no business that's gonna happen, right? Like we, we can't think straight that that's not what we need to do, but we need to be together and we need to pray together. And so our elders, and we invited a few former elders and, and several wives, we all joined together. It was about 15 of us who gathered together on Wednesday night, just after we had all heard about the passing of Randy. We didn't have a plan and agenda. We knew we wanted to pray, which we did for a long time. But, but before that, we just, we just started sharing stories and what we'll remember and what we were thankful for, for Randy in our lives. And these aren't people who just kind of knew him. These are people who knew Randy well for decades at a time. And I was thinking back this week, how interesting it was of, of what people pointed out and their memories of Randy. So I don't know if you noticed now, Randy started his own company over 20 years ago. He was very successful in his field at what he did. Not one person talked about that. Randy had lots of different hobbies. He was an avid hunter. He loved doing stuff outside. No one really talked about that either. What did the focus keep coming back to over and over and over again? How much Randy loved Jesus and how much Randy loved the church. That's what the focus kept coming back to over and over and over again, that he loved Jesus. We all were sharing the different ways that that love of Jesus was seen and how it impacted and changed our lives because he loved people because he loved Jesus. Now, Randy wasn't perfect. 
by any means. But I think Randy had this right in his life, that everything in his life flowed around the love for his savior. That's what was center in his life. And all of these other things came into proper alignment because he put Jesus at the core of who he was and his family and his work and everything else found their proper perspective because his life was built on Jesus. See, there's, there's sometimes when it comes to this idea of, of shaping our life on Jesus, or maybe even earlier, this idea that Jesus sees our sin and so the only proper response is to ask for forgiveness. The, the easy response is to to be like, okay, I'll, I'll get to that. Man, this week, I just want to remind you of the, the urgency to do this now in our lives. Randy was here last Sunday worshiping. Randy was at Trunk or Treat Sunday night, hanging out with all the kids. And on Tuesday, Randy was home with his savior. Life is short. You don't know what this week will bring for you. There is great urgency in this, that when Jesus sees the depths of your soul and your sin, to reach out for his grace and mercy. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead so that you could have life. You don't have to be desperate in your sin, but you can find healing and hope in Jesus. And for those of us who know Jesus, it's not that once life calms down, once I make enough money, once I buy the house, once I get settled, then, no, the call is now to build our lives on Jesus. Because I was struggling, what if that was me? What would people reflect on my life? I would want them to say the same that the life was centered and built on Jesus. And that's our call for every single one of us who are followers of him today. God, we thank you that you, that you are worthy of our worship. God, you are worthy of our entire lives, our, our singular, our soul devotion being centered and lived for you and for you alone. So would you show us the idols in our hearts that so easily creep in? Would we push them to the side so that you have your rightful place in our lives? God, and I pray that if there's anyone gathered here in person or watching today who's never placed their faith in you, God, that today they would see that you are the God who sees us, who knows us truly. You see our sin. We can't hide it from you. And would today, seeing the urgency, the shortness of life, would today be the day that they place their faith, their trust in you, find forgiveness and healing and hope in what you have done for us on the cross. We honor and we worship you today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.